And so ends the reading, John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. We close out now with this study, this lengthy study in that chapter. I've titled this message, The Wrong Door. Several years ago, I believe this was somewhere in North Carolina, there was a report of a woman who in that, whatever city it was, she had received a package through the mail that for some reason she became convinced was a bomb. And so... For some reason, I don't quite understand, she took the package to the sheriff's department and the bomb squad quickly put it outside and blew it up. I don't know why, if you had a package that you thought was a bomb, you would drive it to the sheriff's department, but she did. Well, it turned out the package contained nothing more than some gifts intended for that woman. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to offer the gift of forgiveness and deliverance and salvation to all his elect people. But there were some who were foolishly suspicious of that gift and clearly showed they were not among the elect of God by rejecting that message. I would like for us as we consider these 10 verses that we've just read, 11 verses, to consider these four things in particular. First of all, Think about the blasphemous and slanderous language used here by the Lord's enemies. Look again at what they say. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? You know, it's typical of immature people who are on the losing end of an argument to resort to personal attacks and verbal abuse. Not only is this the common language of the immature in a defeated cause... They are also the favorite weapons of the devil. When the devil has no other means to carry out his attack, he inspires those who do his bidding to lash out with slander. Now, we have already seen earlier, back in chapter 4, when Jesus had the encounter of the Samaritan woman at the well, how the Jews and Samaritans were the harshest of enemies back in those days, and still somewhat even today. Now, one reason for that was a bitter dispute over their common ancestry. Here we go with the the racial and ethnic thing again. So when Jesus calls into question the validity of the Pharisees' relationship to Abraham, that, to them, sounds like what a Samaritan would say. And any Jew who would say such a thing, well, he must be possessed by demons in addition. That is, he must be out of his mind. A few weeks ago, we saw the nature of the mistaken ideas of the Jews, how they were trusting in their bloodline and their ancestry as that which made them right in God's sight. And when Jesus dares to challenge or to correct that thinking, they insult him. And in this, Jesus sets an example for all of us to follow. You know, there are some people, maybe some of us here today, are listening by means of sermon audio. The place where you work is not a place at all friendly to the follower of Christ and his kingdom. Some people suffer ridicule from their co-workers because they don't go in for the filthy jokes and the vile language and getting on board with everything else in our culture and society, whether it be 
you know, the, the downright pornographic nature of entertainment these days, or uh, even that of bowing and scraping to the almighty state as it seeks to replace God in the lives of people, at least in these United States. That is typical of many non-Christians. So in suffering that way, in, in dealing with that kind of ridicule, Christians who are in that circumstance are following very closely in your Savior's footsteps. And what we see here proves that in spite of the distance of over 2,000 years in time, human nature has not changed. The wicked still hate the name of Jesus, and the follower of Christ is still called upon to endure ridicule, suffering in his name. That's the first thing. The second thing that we want to take note of here, you see it in verse 51, is the Lord's encouragement to his followers. And if we have an example of the suffering and ridicule, there's also the encouragement. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, hey, listen to this. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the true Christian will never have to face physical death. No, we all must cross that river when God Almighty ordains that our time has come. But what that does mean is this. The Christian will not be hurt by the second death. Now, if you are not a whole Bible Christian, if your Christianity is distorted to where you're only believing in the red letters in some editions of the New Testament, or if you think that the Old Testament is for the Jews and the New Testament is for the Christians, or some other crazy idea like that, this won't make any sense to you. But the Bible is God's divine revelation from Genesis to Revelation. It is all of one piece. It is a full-orbed divine revelation. The second death refers to the final ruin of the whole person in hell, of which the first death is but a dim reflection. Now, Holy Scripture refers to this second death in Revelation 28, excuse me, 21 verse 8. And by the way, Revelation, of course, is written by the same author of the gospel according to John. Um, Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. But Jesus declares that all who follow him, who are in covenant with him, they don't have to face that death and will not. And his words also mean, that the sting of the first death, that is our physical death, is also taken away. Our, our flesh may fail, but the crushing weight of a life of unpardoned sin will not bear down on us. Thank God. And that really is the worst part of death. Knowing in these final moments in this physical plane, the curtain is falling and you will never rise again physically in this life. And some folks will go in that condition before their creator as a stranger to his grace and mercy. But the follower of Jesus need have no fear of that. You know, that used to be a popular slogan some years ago. You'd see it on t-shirts and other places. No fear! It's kind of a braggadocious de a declaration of bravery and arrogance in the face of danger. But you see, the Christian is the only person who can truly say, no fear! Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, reading from the New King James Version, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the claim to have no fear is really one only true of the person who keeps the word of Christ. 
That promise belongs to the one who receives and obeys the message of the kingdom. Then thirdly, we also learn here, and this is another part of the full-orbed, whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole Bible-believing Christian, Abraham, the great patriarch, possessed a true knowledge of Christ Jesus. You see that referred to here in verse 56, reading this from the ESV. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. See, when Jesus made that declaration, Abraham had been dead and buried for almost a hundred, excuse me, a thousand eight hundred and fifty years. And yet the Lord said he had seen the day of Jesus. How are we under, to understand that kind of statement? Well, I want to suggest three possible ways that it could be understood. First of all, I think we can reasonably speculate that Abraham, on more than one occasion, actually had encounters with the pre-incarnate Son of God. For example, in Genesis 18, verse 1, we read the following from the New King James Version, Then the Lord appeared to Abram by the terebinth tree of the trees of Mamre, and as he, is sitting, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, the Lord appeared to him. Now, many theologians, and I think with good reason, speculate and claim that this was the Christ coming to Abraham in a form that looked forward to, that prefigured his coming into the world in human flesh. So there really is a literal sense in which Abraham did see the Son of God. But then secondly, he saw Christ symbolically in another way. He saw the Lord in the action that he, Abraham, was asked to undertake by the Lord to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But I think Jesus is here speaking of a third way that we can understand this, and that is the symbolic or figurative way of him having seen the days of Jesus. Jesus means that by faith, Abraham looked forward to that day of the Lord's coming, and as he looked for and hoped for that day, he was glad. That doesn't mean that Abraham had a Burkhoff systematic theology understanding of all the particulars of God's Son taking on human flesh. And it's not to say that Abraham, if he had been asked, could fully explain the whole manner and circumstances of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. But that notwithstanding, the Bible plainly tells us that Abraham saw coming a time when the Redeemer would make all the world rejoice. And that he was glad and pondering that fulfillment of the promises of God to him. You know, some Christians have the idea, and this again gets to the heart of, do we believe the whole Bible, or do we chop it up, or do we divide it into these different sections and exclude parts from the other? Some Christians have the idea that the saints in the Older Testament were saved by some other means than the saints in the New Testament, but that is not at all what Holy Scripture teaches. You see, in God's plan... There is only one plan of salvation and one Savior and one hope of sinners. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, all the true members of God's family in the older covenant age, they looked to and were saved by the same Christ that we look to today. And not surprisingly, our fathers who have gone before us in faith, when they take up the teachings of the whole Bible... They come up with this explanation that I've just given you. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes the Bible's teachings on this in chapter 11.6 where it declares, 
The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Covenant. Now, the Westminster Confession was written in the year A.D. 1646. Um, Some years later, the 39 Articles of the Church of England were written. And these are very Reformed and Calvinistic articles. Of course, Church of England today doesn't even know they exist. But these are worthy of study in our time. They were written in the year A.D. 1571, like I said, roughly 100 years after the Confession. And in the 39 Articles, the same biblical truth was recognized and, I think, even more emphatically stated in Article 7 of the 39, where it's written, and I'm quoting, The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered through Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard. They're not to be allowed a voice, in other words, who wrongfully assert that the Old Testament saints looked only at transitory promises, end quote. So Jesus here speaks of the unity of the undivided nature of his one redemptive plan to save his people. And in all ages, the defining characteristic shared by all those who are members of God's household is their covenant relationship to him. That is Bible truth. Fourthly, finally, Jesus declares his pre-existence. Look again at verse 58. I'm reading it from the ESV. There, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Another translation has it. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, that is a curious, if not hard, saying, isn't it? No matter if you're reading this in the Greek text or in English, a translation, it's hard to fathom the depths of that statement. But listen, let me tell you, of this there can be no doubt. Jesus was emphatically stating that he existed, the Christ existed, long before he came into this world in physical form. Even before the days of Abraham, thousands of years ago, he, the Lord, was. Even before the creation of man, he was. Jesus of Nazareth was no mere man like Moses or David. He is one who has existed as the Christ From all eternity, the same yesterday, today, and forever, of one substance with God the Father. That is why the Jews take up stones to kill him. He claimed to be God in human flesh. And their Talmudic tradition-bound religion would not allow for that. Obviously, some of the Jews believed it. They understood because they were believing in God's revelation in what we call the Older Testament not in the traditions of the rabbis. Before Abraham was, I am. As deep as those words are, and as hard as they may be for us to grasp, they are full of practical comfort for us today. They show us the length and the breadth, the depth, the height of that sure foundation on which the sinner is called to rest his or her sins and soul. The very one to whom the Bible commands us to come with our sinful lives for forgiveness, to seek his pardon and receive that redemption and find rest for our soul, he is no mere human being. He is very God and truly able to save, redeem, and deliver all those who come to him. And with that kind of assurance, we must continually come to him. 
coming with the total confidence that in times of great fear and distress, we can lean on him. He is the true God, and in him, our lives are secure. Many years ago, when Donald Gray Barnhouse was pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he told a story about a man who uh, had the unpleasant habit from our perspective nowadays, a lot of people did it back then, of smoking in bed. It's bad enough that he smoked cigarettes, but he was smoking in bed, he fell asleep, and apparently the cigarette fell out of his mouth, and the bed caught fire. Well, he was awakened by these flames, and so he jumped out of the bed, flung open the door, and slammed it behind him. But then he realized he had shut himself into his coat closet and could not get out. Well, fortunately, his neighbors smell the smoke and they call the fire department. And the fire department extinguished the flames and the man who was foolishly smoking in bed was freed from that closet when they heard him banging on the door. Now, I've heard that story more than a few times and it's occurred to me that this is comparable to those types of people who are caught in the consequences of their bad decisions. And they race to any door and rush in only to be trapped in their false hopes. My friends, Christ is the only stronghold. He is the only door to God. He was the means by which Abraham was reconciled to God. And he is the way that we are too. And like these Pharisees, anyone who attempts to find safety by any other door will find themselves Trapped forever. And the Lord himself has declared to us that he is the door, the pathway, the entrance to abundant age-enduring life. And by his grace and mercy, we walk through that door. Let us pray.